You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part three in our series on Alexander von Humboldt. There are two things I want to mention before we get going. Number one is that there is a map of Humboldt's journey on the website, explorerspodcast.com. And number two is unrelated to this series, but I wanted to share it with you. I recently did a long interview with Ryan Faulkner Hogue, who runs the website atlasgeographica.com. He also has a podcast called The Curious Worldview Podcast. Ryan's work is dedicated to things such as journalism and finding out about the world. His podcast is just a part of all the stuff that he does. Ryan was great, and we talked a long time about a bunch of different things. We, of course, talked about explorers, but there's also a lot about the creative side of making the podcast, the history of the show, funny stories, ways that I find inspiration, things like that. It was a fun time, and if you want to understand more about this show and how I approach creating it, please check it out. I put a link to his show in the notes of this podcast, and you can find a link on my own website, explorespodcast.com. Alrighty, that is it for notes. Let's get rolling. Last time, we left Alexander von Humboldt in Cumana, Venezuela. He had just completed his first great expedition, thousands of miles through the jungles of Venezuela and up the Orinoco River to the Casiquiare. Here, he mapped and charted the canal that connects the Orinoco River to the Amazon Basin. At the same time, Humboldt and his companion, M. Bonplan, had documented the world of the region. This included the plants, animals, geography, people, history, and much, much more. It was all helping Humboldt develop his own theories. This included the ideas of the continental drift, the food chain, human-induced climate change, and more. It was the concept that everything in the world was interwoven and ever-evolving, or as Humboldt called it, an impression of the whole. So, in Cumana, Humboldt and Bonplant recovered and recuperated from their long expedition into the South American interior. At the same time, they began to organize the thousands of specimens they had collected. They were given the chance to send some of these things back to Paris when a French naval squadron arrived in Cumana. Humboldt handed off some items, including his menagerie of animals, which consisted of monkeys, macaws, parrots, and other birds. Humboldt and Bonplant departed from Cumana on November 24, 1800. It took 25 days for a ship to reach Havana due to constant storms. They finally arrived on December 19th. Humboldt's plan was to spend time in Cuba and then head to the United States, where he wanted to descend the Ohio and Mississippi rivers to New Orleans. From there, it would be on to Mexico and then the Philippines. Now, I want to mention one encounter Humboldt had in Cuba, and that was with Scottish botanist John Fraser and his son. The two had been shipwrecked and were stuck in Cuba. 
Fraser had no permission to be in Spanish territory, and he and his son were at the mercy of colonial officials. Humboldt would intervene on behalf of the two men and get them a license to be on the island. He would also give them a place to stay, clothing, and money. He even offered Fraser's son, John Jr., the opportunity to travel with him in Bonpland, but the younger Fraser declined as he did not speak Spanish very well. Otherwise, Humboldt would send back with the Frasers two crates of specimens with instructions to forward them to his contacts in Berlin. I mention this because I want to stress how important Humboldt felt sharing and supporting scientific work was critical to the world. Throughout his life, Humboldt will support other scientists in many ways, including financially. Even when money got tight, and it would get tight, Humboldt believed in this sort of brotherhood of science. It was an admirable trait. Anyhow, in Cuba, Humboldt began a three-month dive into the island. He went about collecting samples of plants, animals, the soil, you name it. He surveyed towns and cities. He studied sugar production, trade, and technologies. He visited factories and plantations, and he looked closely at the island's culture, which included slavery. Of slavery, he savaged the practice and would advocate for its end. In fact, he would go on to write the political essay on the island of Cuba, warning of the need for reform of the island's slave economy, or face dire consequences. The text was not well received by many European nations who didn't want a stuffy intellectual telling them what was best for their colonies, and the piece would intentionally be mistranslated to warp Humboldt's intentions. I should note that Humboldt's examination of Cuba was exhaustive. We are talking about hundreds and hundreds of pages dedicated to the island, its people, its economy, everything. It actually is an incredible piece of history from this time and place, often covering topics that are rarely looked at. I also want to note that the work that Humboldt did in Cuba, focusing on the people and the culture, as well as the science, would make him greatly appreciated. Because of this, he is often called the second discoverer of Cuba. Again, it's this idea that Humboldt actually looked at the people of the island and Latin America in a way no one had ever done. The culture, their accomplishments, their customs were not dismissed or ignored. In fact, they were acknowledged, even celebrated. That was rare for this time. Anyhow, as I mentioned before, Humboldt was looking to go to America, but then something cropped up that changed his mind. Remember Nicolas Baudin? He was the commander of a French expedition that aimed to sail around the world. Humboldt had initially been a part of that endeavor before the war in Europe delayed the expedition and sent him on his own to the Americas. Well, it was in Cuba that Humboldt received word that Baudin's expedition, consisting of two ships, was getting ready to sail. They would come to South America, round Cape Horn, do a survey of the coast of Chile and Peru, and then head to the South Pacific and Australia. Humboldt had hoped something like this would happen. If Bodin actually came to South America, once he rounded Cape Horn, Lima would be the logical place to resupply and refit his vessels. Humboldt calculated the time the voyage would take and estimated that Bodin would likely arrive in Lima at the end of 1801. That would give him about nine months to reach the city. This offered Humboldt a golden opportunity. To sail around the world was just too cool of a thing. America would have to wait. Humboldt and Bonpland left for South America on March 5, 1801. They arrived in Cartagena in modern-day Colombia on the northern shore of the continent on March 30th. To ensure the safety of all of his collections, he and Bonpland made copies of all their journals, notes, and manuscripts. They then sorted and packed all the thousands of specimens. After that, they shipped things back to Europe. Due to the ongoing war, the collection was split up, one batch going to Germany, another to France, that sort of thing. That way, if a ship got lost or captured, they wouldn't lose everything due to one catastrophe. By the way, Humboldt attached instructions on his collections that they were to be, in case of capture, sent to Joseph Banks, the head of the Geographical Society in London. 
This way, if the British did capture Humboldt's stuff, it would, hopefully, at least get delivered to Banks and not get tossed into the ocean. I mentioned Banks earlier in this series. He was one of the most influential scientists of the era. He had set up a worldwide network of plant collectors, basically scientists sending him specimens from all over the world. All of the European powers honored what Banks was doing and, despite the ongoing Napoleonic Wars, allowed these communications and deliveries to continue. Of it, Banks said, quote, The science of two nations may be at peace while their politics are at war. End quote. I love this. It goes with that vibe I just talked about in which these men and women looked at science and knowledge as something that needed and deserved to be shared and discussed. And I love that the nations of Europe basically agreed and let a lot of this communication continue despite the war. The only thing Humboldt didn't send back to Europe was a single book filled with press plants. He wanted to be able to compare some of the things he had found with other specimens he would encounter in the future. So, in addition to sending all of his stuff back to Europe, Humboldt wrote to his family and friends a final goodbye before his next great excursion. And that was going to be an epic 2,500-mile, or 4,000-kilometer, journey into the South American jungle and the Andes Mountains. The latter is the longest mountain range in the world, and one of the highest. The plan went as follows. From Cartagena, he and Bonplant would travel to Bogota, the capital of modern-day Colombia, and then cross the Andes Mountains and reach Quito. From there, it was 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometers, south to Lima. And it all had to be done in nine months in order to meet with Baudin in the French expedition heading to the South Pacific. It was a daunting task, but Humboldt said such a journey could, quote, be conquered with energy, end quote. I want to mention that Humboldt considered sailing from Cartagena to Panama, crossing the Isthmus, and then taking another ship to Peru. However, sailing down the South American coast was extremely dangerous this time of year, as it was hurricane season, so not many ships made the voyage. And let's face it, it's not nearly as fun as hacking through jungles and crossing massive mountain ranges. Humboldt departed Cartagena on April 6th, aiming for the Rio Magdalena, 60 miles or 100 kilometers to the east. Bonplant was with him, as was José de la Cruz, the trusted mestizo servant who had been on the Orinoco adventure. Due to the dense jungle, progress was slow, the men covering only five miles a day. On this march, one of the barometers would break, leaving the team with only a single working one. A barometer was essential for measuring the height of a mountain, which Humboldt intended to be doing in short order, so he fretted over the law, saying, quote, Lucky are those who travel without instruments that break. End quote. Going forward, Humboldt would go to great lengths to protect his last barometer, later calculating that over five years he spent $800 on various people and precautions to make sure the device was protected, transported, and cared for properly. All this for an instrument that cost him $12 back in Europe. At the Rio Magdalena, the team would hire canoes, paddlers, and a guide to take them upriver towards Bogota. As it was rainy season, the journey was a miserable one due to the humidity and the mosquitoes. Our friends the mosquitoes never let up. Another issue was the crocodiles, which were so dangerous the men had to avoid going into the water. Humboldt's team would paddle up the Magdalena for 55 days, reaching the river port of Honda, a city of 4,000, on July 15th. They were 100 miles from Bogota. The voyage was a rough one. There were rapids and cataracts, the men having to haul or portage their canoes over these obstacles. At one stretch of water, the river narrowed to only 30 or so feet wide, or 10 meters. In that time, the elevation gained more than 400 feet, or 120 meters. Now, two things about the team's next destination, Bogota. First, Humboldt had an important reason for wanting to visit the city, and that was a person, Spanish botanist José Celestino Mutis. 
Mutis was the most celebrated and knowledgeable naturalist in South America. Humboldt desired to see the man's collection and compare it with his own samples. Mutis was known to be a bit of a prickly character, so Humboldt sent a flattering letter ahead, introducing himself and paving the way for his arrival. The second thing about Bogota is that it is situated on a plateau at an altitude of nearly 9,000 feet, or 2,700 meters. The team would set off, and the ascent was rugged and steep. They followed a river valley upwards, higher and higher, reaching the city on July 8th. One concerning thing that cropped up on the march was the health of Embonpoint. The man had nearly died the previous year after a battle with typhus, and to be honest, he struggled at times. This was especially noticeable as the men neared Bogota and the air got thinner and thinner. Upon arriving, the men would be greeted by Jose Mutiz and other town dignitaries. Many banquets and events would follow, which Humboldt didn't care for, but which he endured. As for Mutiz, the celebrated Spanish botanist was happy to welcome Humboldt to his home. He was 69 years old, and he had spent the last 40 years cataloging the flora and fauna of South America. Humboldt found the man's home and his work extraordinary. Mutiz had a studio employing 32 artists who created meticulous drawings of the region's flora. Mutiz had 6,000 watercolors of indigenous plants, and Humboldt said that the man's book collection was only bested by Joseph Banks. The two naturalists talked and talked, sharing information and ideas. It was a dream for Humboldt. He was so impressed by Mutiz and his work, when Humboldt published his first volume on botany, he dedicated it to the celebrated botanist, saying, quote, as a simple mark of our admiration and acknowledgement, end quote. Anyhow, Humboldt would find himself in Bogota for two months due to Bonpont coming down with a severe fever. To occupy himself, he inspected local mines as well as salt and coal fields. He also collected specimens and even found some mastodon bones. Also, Humboldt went on excursions to the neighboring mountains so he could measure their heights, which ranged from 13 to 16,000 feet. His servant, Jose, was entrusted to carry the team's sole surviving barometer. Bonpont would finally recover and the team departed Bogota on September 8th. They had three mules packed with food, plus another eight mules and oxen loaded with instruments, luggage, and gear. Five porters guided the wagon train. The plan was to cross the Andes Mountains at the Quindío Pass at an elevation of 12,000 feet, or 3,650 meters. It was considered one of the most dangerous and difficult passes in the Andes. And so up and down and then up and up some more went the train of men and pack animals. Rain and thunderstorms and later snow made the trail muddy and slick, and at times it was as narrow as eight inches wide. The sights could be terrifying as they walked along precipices that dropped hundreds, even thousands of feet. Other times they descended into valleys so thick and deep it was as dark as the night. But there were amazing sights as well. Great condors with 30 feet or 9 meter wingspans. And at night the men could see the glow from the mountain peaks, flames shooting out of active volcanoes. The pass over the Andes was a long and brutal one, and during this time Humboldt was taken with pangs of loneliness, something rare for him. He had been gone for two and a half years, and he had only received a single letter from his brother. He wrote lots of letters himself, even though he knew most would never reach their intended recipients, but writing gave him a sense of connection to the world, and it was a practice that he would keep up all of his life. The journey over the mountains to Quito would take nearly four months the men arriving in the city of 40,000 in early January 1802. They had covered 1,300 miles in nine months since leaving Cartagena. Impressive stuff, but Humboldt knew that he was behind schedule. Odin could be in Lima by now. Except he wasn't, and never would be. The French government decided that the entire South American part of his expedition was not needed. 
Instead, Bowdoin would sail to the South Pacific by rounding the Cape of Good Hope, aka Africa, and heading across the Indian Ocean. By the way, Bowdoin's expedition would be a success, particularly around the area of Australia, where 2,500 specimens unknown to science were collected. However, Bowdoin would become ill and die on his return journey. It was here in Quito that Humboldt would get word that Bowdoin would not be coming to South America. Now, one of the things I love about Humboldt is that when plans change, he doesn't lament the lost opportunity. Instead, he finds something else to do. And so, with his trip to the South Pacific not in the cards, he turned to something really cool to occupy his time. Volcanoes. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Alexander von Humboldt had always been fascinated by volcanoes, and they were understudied by Western science. There were only two active volcanoes in Europe, Etna and Vesuvius, both in Italy. People wanted to know more. Were volcanoes found in clusters? Were they connected to the Earth's core? There were a thousand other questions. Here in the Andes, Humboldt had mountains galore and volcanoes that he could study, and on a grander scale than anything he had examined in Europe or the Canary Islands. By the way, at this time, there was a debate among scientists about how the Earth had been created. Until the Enlightenment, the general belief in Western society was that the Earth was only about 6,000 years old. This was calculated by interpretations of the Bible. But scientists were beginning to express doubt at that number, saying that the world was much, much older. The big theory to emerge at this time surrounded the idea that the Earth was formed by some sort of primal force. One group of people, the Neptunists, saw water as the catalyst. The Vulcanists thought it was volcanic activity that transformed the world. This was a hot topic, literally, in the world of science. So Humboldt seized on the opportunities he had and decided to spend some time exploring. Over the next five months, Humboldt would climb every reachable volcano, Sometimes he would climb it with only his servant, Jose, carrying the barometer, or he would go with Bonplant or his new companion, Carlos Montufar. One nearby volcano, Cotopaxi, had erupted in 1769, spewing ash so thick the locals had to use lanterns in the daytime. Humboldt tried to ascend Cotopaxi, but was stopped at the 14,000-foot mark. He reached the summit of Antisana, which was more than 18,000 feet high, or 5,500 meters. By the way, I mentioned the name of Carlos Montufar a moment ago, and I want to introduce him to our story. Montufar was the 22-year-old son of the provincial governor, and he would become a very close friend of Humboldt's. He was not a scientist, but he was smart and eager to learn. Plus, he had an engaging and pleasant personality, making him a welcome addition to the team. 
Humboldt departed Quito on June 9, 1802, his destination Lima. From Lima, he would look for passage to Mexico. But on the way, he wanted to climb Chimborazo, one of the great peaks of the Andes, rising up more than 20,000 feet, or 6,100 meters. It was about 100 miles south of Quito. Humboldt called Chimborazo a, quote, monstrous colossus, end quote. The team for this climb consisted of Humboldt, Bonpont, Montefiore, Jose de la Cruz, and some guides. Humboldt was entranced by the sight of the great mountain as they approached it, saying it, quote, exerts a mysterious pull, end quote. By the way, Humboldt would have become, by this time, one of the most experienced mountaineers in the world. And that quote about the lure of the mountain is something most climbers, even today, will express. I've known a few climbers, and just the sight of a rock face or a mountain will cause them to gaze longingly at the peak. On June 22nd, Humboldt reached a small village at the base of the mountain. There he hired porters and mules to take them higher. The caravan would head up the mountain at a slow pace. At 1,350 feet, or 4,100 meters, they were forced to leave their pack animals as the ascent became too steep. Everyone loaded up what they could on their backs and continued onward. That night, it snowed on Chimborazo. Still, the next day, the team reached an altitude of 15,600 feet. By now, the hands and feet of the men were growing numb. No one had any sort of specialized clothing for climbing. That sort of thing was a century away. Also, the sharp rocks were tearing up the shoes of the party, and thus the porters refused to go on. Humboldt, Bonplant, Montefiore, and Jose divided up the food, gear, and necessary instruments and continued upwards. It was a brutal, cold climb. Humboldt had a cut on his foot that was throbbing as it was infected, and everyone struggled with dizziness and nausea due to altitude sickness. Still, every few hundred feet, Humboldt and the team would break out their instruments and measure the altitude and temperature. The men eventually followed a narrow ridge, which was called Chuchia, which fittingly means knife's edge. They were at times forced to crawl along on all fours, as the ridge narrowed to only inches wide, steep falls on both sides. They followed the ridge and found it eventually grew less steep. And then, as they moved along the ridge, the clouds over Chimborosa cleared, revealing the mountain's peak only a thousand feet away. Humboldt was so close, yet reaching the top was not to be. The ridge they were following soon ended, a great snow-covered crevasse in front of them. The team probed around, looking for a way forward. Montefer tried to walk across a snow bridge, only to sink into the snow over his head, and had to be pulled out. It was time to turn around. This was just too dangerous. Humboldt's last height measurement was 19,413 feet. There would be no summit that day, but this was the highest recorded climb in history to this point. Not even the balloonists of the age had gone higher. But I want to note that there is evidence that people all over the world had climbed higher than Humboldt before this ascent. We just don't know their names, locations, and the dates of their achievements. The climb of Chimborazo was a critical moment for Humboldt. He said that the climb helped put everything he had been experiencing together, and had given him a single glance at the whole of nature. As he climbed, he saw different climate zones, different strata, different vegetation, yet he was taken by the fact that these things were similar no matter what mountain you climbed anywhere in the world. What Humboldt was forming was something he called Gemilda, which means something like a painting of nature. I found this quote on a blog from a coastal wetlands expert and professor named Christopher Janicek, and I think he explained the concept really well. So here's his quote. Gemilda was Humboldt's revolutionary way of depicting nature, a view that emphasized connection and unity between all of life and between life and the abiotic world. Abiotic means physical rather than biological. He saw the world as non-static and evolving, a key idea that underpins our modern understanding of astronomy, geology, evolution, and ecology. 
End quote. For me, this really explains how critical the thinking of Humboldt's was to science in the 19th century. By the way, I put a link to Christopher's website on my own site, so you can go there if you want to read a bit more on his take of Humboldt. He does a nice job of explaining the impact of the man on ecology and the environmental world. Anyhow, in the end, this was a groundbreaking thought. Humboldt was not interested in finding isolated facts, but connecting them. Something was interesting because of their relation to the whole. This thinking was revolutionary. From this, Humboldt would eventually make a beautiful 3 by 2 foot drawing that is incredibly important to the world of science. It is a cross-section of Chimborazo. He shows plants distributed according to altitude, along with columns with related details, including other mountains from all over the world. It is immensely complex, yet also really simple. One might argue it is the world's first infographic, presenting data in a visual way that no one had ever imagined. It's quite extraordinary, and in case you're interested in seeing it, I put one on the website. Author Andrea Wolf, in her book on Humboldt, said, quote, This one drawing and the ideas that had shaped it would change the way that future generations perceive the natural world. End quote. Again, this was a holistic look at the world. It was about the thousands of interconnected threads. I know I've talked a lot about this sort of thing, and I know that it's not always super clear-cut, at least not for me. So I hope that I've been able to give you a semblance of understanding about these theories of Humboldt's. Also, I do want to note that this painting of nature wasn't just something Humboldt dreamed up in a day. It was a concept that evolved over many years, even decades, and the travels and work that he would do in the coming years would further aid him in developing the idea. Anyhow, from Chimborazo, Humboldt headed south towards Lima. There would be other adventures in the cards on this leg of the journey, including traipsing about the Andes as well as the jungle. Humboldt traveled down the rivers that fed the mighty Amazon. One day, the team forded the same river 27 different times. Again, that's in a single day. Another time while in the mountains, he caught sight of the Pacific Ocean, saying, quote, For the first time, we had our view of the Pacific. We saw it distinctly in the glitter of the vast light, an immeasurable expanse of ocean. End quote. This made Humboldt think about visiting places such as China and the Philippines. It was all heady, exhilarating stuff, and he loved the physical challenge of it all. The region also allowed Humboldt to get a first-hand view of the fabled Incan ruins. He was fascinated by them. He found roads hundreds of years old in amazing condition. In the ruins of one Incan city, Cajamarca, he described a great palace and fortress. He found manuscripts written in the language of the Inca from the 16th century. Thankfully, he also found Spanish-language translations of these manuscripts. He said the Incan language was so sophisticated, there wasn't a single European book that could not be translated into it. And something else I found fascinating was Humboldt drawing the connections between the people of the Americas with the people of Asia. In the ruins and the writings of the Inca and Aztecs, he saw similarities between symbols and even stories. This was Humboldt forming the ideas that the people of the Americas had come from Asia. Another thing I want to mention was Humboldt's study of magnetism, something he was always fascinated with. People knew that the magnetic poles were a bit different than the actual north and south poles, and they actually moved. But something I didn't know was that there was a magnetic equator, also called the magnetic dip. As Humboldt marched through the Andes, he was able to pinpoint the location of the magnetic equator at about 7 degrees, or 500 miles, south of the geographic equator. Over the coming months, Humboldt and his party crossed and recrossed the Andes. By the way, they would eventually cross the Andes a total of five times. The company reached Lima in October of 1802. They then took a ship to Guayaquil up the coast, reaching it on January 4, 1803. 
It was here that Humboldt was presented with a golden opportunity. Remember the volcano Cotopaxi, which he had climbed eight months earlier? Well, it erupted. This was something incredibly rare, and Humboldt couldn't resist heading towards the source of this natural phenomenon. There was, however, one major problem. The hurricane season was on the horizon, and sooner or later, ships would stop heading north towards Mexico, which is where Humboldt wanted to go. If they got stuck here, it would be months before they could depart. But the opportunity was just too enticing. Humboldt decided he would do a quick investigation of Cotopaxi, and then rush back to Guayaquil and catch the last ship heading north. Bonplant would stay in Guayaquil and secure passage. And so Humboldt and his team departed on a 200-mile journey to the northeast. They were climbing into the mountains and marching towards an active erupting volcano. This was incredibly dangerous. But for Humboldt to examine an erupting volcano close up, well, that was just too amazing of an opportunity to pass up. However, the trek to Cotopaxi would get cut short. Five days into their march, a message reached Humboldt from Bonplant. He had a ship, but it was leaving in two weeks. If they did not leave now, they would be stuck in Guayaquil for half a year. Humboldt was torn. He really didn't want to be stuck in South America any longer. Thus, he elected to turn around. Cotopaxi would be a missed opportunity. Humboldt and his party would return to Guayaquil and depart the port on February 17, 1803. The destination was Mexico. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Humboldt and his companions had done another amazing journey, this time through the Andes Mountains. As before, Humboldt collected specimens, made a million observations, and most importantly, continued to develop his theories and ideas about nature and the world. I hope that I've given you an engaging and interesting portrait of a really amazing person. The breadth of interest that Humboldt had is staggering. I know I talk a lot about his writings and so forth, but just saying that he writes a lot about a lot of things really doesn't convey everything that the man wrote about and studied. Few people could have done what he did. In the end, I think his ability to master and write about so many subjects is what enables him to embrace this incredible, holistic view of the natural world. It really is astounding. Anyhow, that is it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we will take Humboldt to New Spain, a.k.a. Mexico, and then on to the United States. I look forward to telling you those stories. So thanks for listening. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows, including the American Revolution Podcast and Plotting Through the Presidents. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.